giving us the opportunity to gather. Uh, we realized last year about this time how much of a privilege that was um, when we weren't given the opportunity to gather together. And I thank you for those whose health permits them to be here. Uh, I pray for others who, for a variety of reasons, were not able to attend in person tonight, uh, that uh, you will bless them, that they will be able to um, receive from your word uh, as they tune in online. I pray that you'll open your word up to us, and I pray that we'll understand it, that we'll receive it, and that we'll be transformed by it. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This is uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to back up to verse 10, and then I'm going to go through uh, verse 16. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this, or we speak this, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolish to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person understands all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So a question for you to answer as we get started, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? And if you would say yes or perhaps, why do you say that? What would cause you to define yourself that way? And if you would say no, then what would be the definition in your mind for spiritual or a spiritual person? And who would you think of? when you think of a spiritual person, right? All right, so here's the interesting thing. Um, we can teach the scripture and we seek to teach the word of God, but people can sit and they can listen to that and evaluate that with a natural mind and really not receive anything um, from it. It can just be conjecture. Uh, it is just some sort of esoteric wisdom. Uh, it's uh, theoretical or historical, but it doesn't become personal. It doesn't make a difference. It's not real to them. Now, there are very emotional people and they can hear certain things that will cause them to act out um, with uh, a variety of different emotions. But I, what I want to help us understand as we study this passage is that feelings and or emotions are not the same as being spiritual. And oftentimes I think the impression that people have of being spiritual is that, well, I just, I feel very deeply and I don't get, get into all that institutional religion and, 
And we're thinking about the externals, right? And that might be institutional religion that's more formalistic, like say a Catholic church or uh, even a Methodist or Presbyterian church would be more formal than our church in many respects. In fact, <clears throat> I would venture to say that it is probably going to be a more formal environment at Levon Drive than it would be here. So I plan on dressing accordingly, right? Um, but that's really not, you see, you can be, believe it or not, you can be a Catholic and still believe that Jesus is the Son of God and receive him as your Savior and be a spiritual person because you're inhabited by the Spirit of God. You can be a Methodist or a Presbyterian or you can be a, a, you know, a very, very strict uh, denomination of some sort that's you know, sort of uh, more rule-oriented, let's say. Um, oftentimes, people that are more rule-oriented may seem or appear to be less spiritual. They're just going by the rules. They're keeping the law, right? <clears throat> but people can have a variety of external uh, outlooks, if you will, or associations with uh, the, the word or with religion and still be spiritual. On the other hand, people can go to a denomination or group that is often construed as spiritual, Pentecostals perhaps, uh, charismatic renewal churches of, of a variety of sorts. I watched a little, uh, a little documentary on uh, Calvary Chapel in uh, Costa Mesa, California. Pastor Chuck Smith started that in the 60s. And Pastor Chuck had been a Pentecostal for years before he started Calvary Chapel. But Calvary Chapel is pretty typically considered a charismatic church, not a Pentecostal church. But we would often associate churches like that, churches that perhaps have extended um, musical worship and so forth as spiritual. But you know, that's not necessarily the case. There are spiritual people in those churches and there are people that are more natural. And that's really the opposite. Carnality, we could call it, being fleshly. That doesn't, being fleshly doesn't always have to appear negative or bad, right? So, you know, we would think uh, somebody that's fleshly is lustful and angry or, you know, um, I don't know what other uh, emotional states you would associate with that. But the term in Greek just means a human being without God. You're operating as a practical atheist. You might not be a literal atheist. You might not be a professed atheist, in other words. Oh, I don't believe in God. But someone who is not spiritual is operating in their own natural understanding, in their, uh, in their own, with their own mind, right? So, uh, one of the first verses that we teach our kids in the Karate Club is from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's natural thinking. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, that is, acknowledge the Lord, and he will direct your path. Well, see, that's what it means to be spiritual, is that you are acknowledging God in all of your ways. Um, the Moses Shavir gave all of the, the uh, speakers slash prayers at the National Day of Prayer a verse from John chapter 15. And the verse that I was given is one that I memorized in college, uh, John 15, 5. 
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, or if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. See, that's what we're talking. Being spiritual means abiding in Christ. Uh, or we could look at it another way. It means being filled with the Spirit. God reveals his wisdom. Now, the Apostle Paul was careful to, to say that he focused on the kerygma, that he focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that he did not operate in accordance with the wisdom of the world. But at the conclusion of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, the apostle said, but we do share wisdom for those that are more mature. Once you get past that initial stage, if you will, of fully assimilating the reality that you can do nothing in and of yourself, that you're completely dependent upon Christ for forgiveness, that you're operating in accordance with grace and not your own works, that you fully believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming back. You've opened your life and you've allowed the spirit to come in. Now you're ready to move on to the Didache, right? Remember these terms? I mentioned them again on Sunday morning. You're, you're ready to move on to this learning phase, this growth phase, which presumably is what we're doing here on Wednesday. That's at least my assumption, that we're not just showing up because we don't have anything else to do, right? Um, so when it says in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, he's talking about this secret wisdom from God, this hidden wisdom from God. And then he says, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So that is the Holy Spirit. Now, when we say, I accepted Christ or I received Christ. The person of the Trinity that has actually come into you is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the person of Christ into you. The Holy Spirit gives you new birth. The Holy Spirit transforms you and brings about a transition into a life that is more and more Christ-like, unless I'm not submitting to the Spirit unless I'm simply operating in the natural, in the flesh, right? We've got to be in the Spirit if we're going to understand the things that the Holy Spirit is teaching. Uh, and ideally, my hope is that when you come to a church service or a Bible study, you are seeking to pay attention to the Holy Spirit as He ministers and administers the Word to you so that you can understand how this applies to you, that you're not just uh, interacting with my speech and my words, but you're allowing the Spirit to speak these words to you, okay? Then he goes on, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In verse 11, he says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That's very interesting. That's telling you something about the nature of a human being, about the reality of having a spirit and what that does. I'm made in the image of God. Everyone that is human is made in the image of God, the imago dei. And it is my spirit that makes me uniquely human. There's this big debate, and I've, I've gotten even into it here at church with, with folks about um, 
animals and personhood, animals and, and whether they can understand certain things and God and all of this other stuff. Um, does an animal have a soul? You know, they, you, people are in love with their pets and so they want to, to anthropomorphize their pets. They want to personify them. They want to make them little people. Listen, they're amazing. Animals are amazing. They're God's creation just like you are. And an animal has a rudimentary, rudimentary, basic soul, if you will, because it is alive. It has life within it. What an animal does not have that you have uniquely as a human creation is a spirit. You see, when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we see that God spoke every other creature into existence, but he did something unique with humans. He was careful with humans. So in Genesis 2-7, it says he formed the man from the dust of the earth, that's the body, and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In Hebrew, that word for breath is the same word for spirit. He, that's how he brought or quickened that man to life with his own breath. He did not do that with any other creature. You have a spirit. That is what makes you uniquely human. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a human being or a human soul. So um, your spirit then is what makes you unique from the rest of God's earthly creation. And from this verse, it would seem that self-reflection is made possible by the spirit. Listen to what it says. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? The knower, apparently, is your spirit. It's just very, very interesting, right? Um, so there's a, a level of complexity here that I'm not ready to enter into, and I'm not sure that any of us fully understands this, but what allows for a unique, separate, self from your physical attributes is your spirit, right? When you die, it is your spirit that goes to be with God or your spirit that is separated from God and awaits judgment, right? That is the, uh, the immaterial part of you. And then there is this constant interaction between the spirit and the physical that creates the human life or the human soul, right? Um, so this is why faith is so important because faith is the sensory organ of the spirit. That's how I like to say it. Um, it is the way, faith is the way I integrate intuitional knowledge with rational knowledge. So I'm gonna use this word intuition. Some people might confuse that word also with, well, I had a feeling, right? The word feeling is, is very, very broad, but there is within a person whose spirit has been, uh, we'll say the eyes of the, the spirit of that person have been opened or um, the, the incapacity of the spirit to comprehend or perceive God has been taken away. Um, that's what happens when we're reborn and transformed. The spirit is, is enlivened. The spirit is healed. Uh, the spirit is broken because we're fallen creatures, but that spirit is reborn and resurrected and made well, if you will. But <clears throat> the way that I sense what's coming from the spirit is through faith. 
That's the sensory organ. That's why faith and the Holy Spirit, faith and the Holy Spirit, they're essential companions. And this is what I've said for years in this church. This is what we need to work on. This church is full of wonderful people, but I'm not sure how many of us or how often many of us operate according to faith and allow the Holy Spirit to move us. That will change everything in your life, right? God speaks to the spirit, not the intellect. God doesn't speak via audible voices. Now he can, obviously, and he has at various times, but that is not the typical way that God speaks to uh, a spiritual person. You're not listening for an audible voice because what you're gonna hear is your own voice, right? I, I you know, say this often, and I think I mentioned it Sunday. Um, we talk to ourselves all the time. It's called subvocalization. Well, God spoke to me and I'd be like, okay, well, what does his voice sound like? It probably sounded like your voice. So now we need to really, really take three steps back and say, well, okay, was that God speaking to me? No, there is, it's this kind of uh, God leading us is intuitive. And then I interpret that with my voice, right? With my inner voice. I'm saying, this is what I believe God is saying. I'm, if I'm spiritual, I'm repeating back what the Holy Spirit is leading me to understand in my spirit. Um, intellectual knowledge is not bad, but it's different. It's derived differently. It's very, very soulish. It's very natural. So you have some incredibly intelligent people in history that have been uh, theists, that is believers in a personal God, many, many of them Christians. But you also have many brilliant people, intelligent people, who are atheists. In fact, I think oftentimes today, people associate someone with a high intellect with atheism. So it's obvious that intellect is soulish, excuse me, which is to say it's natural, it's not spiritual. Now, God can be understood as plausible through the intellect, right? So people like William Lane Craig do apologetics to sort of clear the path so that you can say, okay, there are reasons to believe, right? Um, and that's what his, uh, his seminal text about that, that I taught in here years ago is called, a reasonable faith. But reason will not, in and of itself, lead you to a relationship with God. Reason, in and of itself, is not spiritual in nature at all. But it's a check, so just now, when I said, I, I use these categories, I said, you, you sub-vocalize, you talk to yourself. What did the voice sound like? It sounded like your voice. I'm using reason to speak to your mind. But what I'm hoping is that this is going to clear a path so that you can begin to perceive your own spirit as God chooses to speak to your spirit. But that creates faith. It says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So it's the Holy Spirit that makes the thinking of God comprehensible to the limited human mind. The Holy Spirit is our interpreter. I always want you to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. I want you to ask the Spirit to speak to you when you open your Bible. We need to stop approaching these things in a naturalistic fashion. 
He is the one, that is the Spirit is the one who reveals and applies God's mind to each faith-filled person. And he makes the immutable God relevant in a transient world. What does immutable mean? You know what that word means? Immutable? Unchangeable. That's right. He's unchanging. Unchangeable. He's unchangeable and he's unchanging. But the world is changing all the time. It's constantly changing. So how can we understand this unchanging God when we're just all over the place, right? That's what the Spirit does, right? And interestingly, this is perhaps one way of understanding uh, John's name for Jesus, which is the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, there was a philosopher about 400 and, well, about 400 or so years before Christ by the name of Heraclitus, who said, you cannot put your foot in the same river twice. Well, the river is like the world. It's constantly moving. But we can understand it. We can comprehend it via the logos. So nature operates according to laws. Nature is constant. It is consistent. So we can observe things that are going on in nature. We can experiment. And then we can predict how that will happen again in the future. That's how technology works. So everything that we, you know, we say science. Science is a method. When people have turned it into a religion. It's a method of gathering um, data and experimenting and being able to predict what's going to happen next as the result of that knowledge. It's a, a method of, of receiving knowledge, if you will. Um, so uh, the Logos, Jesus, is the one who takes this incomprehensible world and causes it to make sense to each of us. So this is why I'm going to say this again and again, and I think this is a theme. All of us need to unite around the person of Christ, not a theory of atonement, not critical racial theory, not some other theological fine point or doctrinal point, but the personal Jesus. That is what uh, C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity, right? Basic Christianity, essential Christianity. That's how we can come to know this utterly, otherly, awe-inspiring God. Um, the Apostle Paul states that an unbeliever will consider uh, someone who is spiritual to, to be crazy. And he says this when, uh, he sp when he talks about, that is when the Apostle Paul talks about the spiritual gift of tongues, right? Now, there's lots of debate about this gift, um, but tongues represent a language spoken by a person that is beyond or above that person's comprehension of the language. And uh, this was a miracle that was used to proclaim the gospel in Acts chapter 2, which I plan to preach on in the not-too-distant future. Um, and it was a miracle that was used to proclaim the gospel due to the concurrent operation of the gift of interpretation. So the Apostle Paul said, if someone speaks in tongues in a church service, then there must be an interpreter present. In other words, someone who receives the gift of interpretation, that is the Holy Spirit, is interpreting to that person what this unknown language is saying. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul said, then the person who is 
speaking in tongues need to remain seated and needs to remain quiet. But this is why the apostle said, I'd rather utter five known words in a church service than 5,000 words in a tongue because I want people in that service to understand. Um, but tongues appear to be uh, a gift given to the believer as what many have called a quote-unquote prayer language. It is to express the inexpressible. And being in the presence of God is, is overwhelming. Uh, God is awesome and his thoughts are too great and too many. Uh, as the hymn has it, he is ineffably sublime. He is unspeakably above and beyond us. So perhaps the gift of tongues is an expression of the Holy Spirit that frees one from the need to comprehend all that they are expressing in praise and worship of this utterly, otherly awe-inspiring God. Praise and worship just flows. It flows out in an expression that is beyond human comprehension. Now, you may find yourself singing uh, various choruses and verses and, and so forth, and there, there's nothing more spiritual about tongue speaking than singing or praying or preaching in a known language. Um, however, I'm trying to help us to understand uh, that we're dealing with a God that is above and beyond us and that the spiritual is not natively intellectual, right? Um, it's not anti-intellectual either. And you could get that perception from some groups that are very focused on the Holy Spirit, uh, that put a high premium on tongue speaking, which uh, I do not believe that that is a gift that the Spirit gives to everybody. And there are groups that would disagree with me and say, no, you don't even have the Holy Spirit unless you have that gift. And we could get into uh, a debate there, and eventually we'll get into that because it's in this very uh, book. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about tongues extensively in chapters 12 and 14, right? But listen to this uh, brief passage from Romans, and this is the Apostle Paul again. This is Romans 8, 26 and 27. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible sighs or groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So perhaps someone who is caught up in a tongue-speaking Shall I call it an episode? Maybe that doesn't sound very healthy. Um, is being taken over by the Spirit who is the, those inexpressible groans or sighs are, are being spoken through that person, right? Next, the apostle writes, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Bah! Stop. Satan is a spirit. Satan is a spiritual being. There was a homeless guy that we used to try to minister to years ago, and I heard that uh, he got murdered, actually, uh, about a year ago, Mr. Phillips. And uh, I had to have him trespassed off of a couple of properties because we'd help him, and then he would start getting aggressive, and um, you know, I'd have to tell him that I don't want him to do that or that we can't give him any more money, and he would get mad, and he would want to fight, and so forth. But he, he had a very, very... Uh, honest moment with me one time, and he was talking about being at a, uh, a Pentecostal church just up the road from us where they sought to get him to speak in tongues, right? 
And there's a common practice in some of these churches where they will take the person and they will put their fingers under the person's neck and move their fingers up and down to just, I guess, try to make noise come out that's, you know, gibberish, essentially. And he said they were praying over him, they were doing stuff like that, and he said it just felt evil. Satan uses and abuses. He counterfeits these gifts, and that's one that he counterfeits quite a bit, right? So we need to be aware there is a spirit of the world, and that spirit of the world is the prince of the power of the air who is in complete opposition to God. And if you're a spiritual person, you sense that hostility that is coming at you. And you need to be sensitive to whether you should even get into uh, an environment where the spirit of the world is operating powerfully among people. This is why you know, people go to these protests and they turn into riots and so forth. You need to pray very seriously about where and when and whether a protest might be something that is valid, legitimate, over a grievance that is, but that doesn't mean that the people that are all there are uh, going to be doing anything that is safe or healthy or, excuse me, right. We haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, and that's how we understand the things that are freely given to us by God. I'm going to tell you, and I said this at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, and I hope there's more of you tuned in. I wish there were more people here tonight to listen to this. You need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit to stay safe in our world. You really do. You need to stop bouncing around in the natural. If you have a sense that you should go another way, then you should go another way. You know, the other day, I, uh, I was coming was coming down the road toward downtown Garland and I noticed that there was the, the train that was there. And I was like, oh brother. And so I just turned around and went back to the mall. I turned around, so it turned about, turned out, excuse me, and somebody got hit by the train. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit. It might be something as simple as this intuition that you need to take another route home right? Or your mom takes you, hey, hey, mom, I don't think we need to go this way, right? It could be something like that. You never know what the Spirit is trying to say to you and how he's trying to lead you. Um, and, it, you know, I said this in the, in the midst of the pandemic and, um, you know, in relation to, you know, to getting this, I try to pay attention. I'm not perfect. I'm not by any means. I try to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, again, as I, as I said a couple Sundays ago, I've been to the gym every single day that it's been allowed to be open. This church has been wide open ever since we've been allowed to be open. And I've been to restaurants every single day, virtually, that they've been allowed to be open. These are the three m big spreaders of COVID. And yet, I haven't had it. I try to be careful. I try to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. I try to be safe, right? It's critical. This is very practical. This is not just, oh, well, that's those spiritual people like pastors. No, this is you. This is every day, right? Pay attention to opportunities. So here's a good example. I came back a little bit early uh, the other day and uh, it, 
I had already worked out at the gym. I'd gotten all my other stuff ready. And I said, like, if I got this little buffer of time, what do I want to do with this time right here? And I had this kind of sense, no voice, right? Just this kind of sense, ah, go to Rosaline. Like, I don't want any more coffee. So then I happened to look on my phone and lo and behold, Moses Juvier had texted me and said, hey, you want to, you know, come and get some flyers from me over at Rosaline. Well, it, he texted me like an hour before I saw it. So I was like, I'm going to go over there either way. And I texted him back, even as I was heading over there and said, hey, you know, are you still there? Well, he texted back. I'd already gotten over there and saw him sitting there. We ended up talking for an hour and a half. It's a great conversation, right? Listen, God has divine appointments for you. Please, please, please pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Get out of the natural and start walking in the spiritual because he wants to lead you, right? The spirit of the world, other than personifying the spirit of the world as Satan, but there's a, a, a world spirit that has been called the zeitgeist, which is German, literally means the time ghost. Every age has a zeitgeist. Every generation or time period has a different spirit. And we've seen a very, very different spirit come into our world over even the last five, six years. Very different. Um, you need to understand that the spirit of the age is from the God of this world, the devil. He is the spirit behind the dominant worldly beliefs and practices of any age. The reason the zeitgeist changes may be due to the tactics and schemes of the devil or because there are different uh, demonic forces. You know, uh, he's essentially the head of, a, of a, uh, an angelic army, a fallen angelic army that is attempting to destroy the world. And uh, the reason the zeitgeist changes, maybe there's, there's you know, a change in leadership there, I don't know. Um, but the, atten the intent is always the same, to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come to give you life, abundant life, right? But the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. So this may take up the rest of the time. Um, so I might not finish this chapter as I thought I was going to tonight. But I want, to, I want to step away and I want to talk about what I see as the spirit of the age based on uh, a book that I just finished reading by Vadi Bauckham Jr. called Fault Lines. And uh, we could call the spirit of the age neo-Marxism. We could use a term that is more specific to the tactic that is being used. Um, Bauckham uses the term critical social justice quite a bit. And it encompasses social justice, critical race theory, and other affiliated critical efforts to overturn the Christian worldview in the West, right? Critical racial theory, critical social justice, this is a set of ideas, modes of thought, ethics, and methods that define critical social justice in both thought and activism, that is theory and practice. Practice is practice. In a meaningful way, theory is the central object, the canon and source of further revelation of canon of critical social justice. That is, theory is the heart of 
a worldview or the worldview that defines critical social justice. In other words, Balkum writes, critical theory is not just an analytical tool as some have suggested, it is a philosophy, a worldview. The Democratic Party in America is pushing this perspective. Our educational system is, is indoctrinating children with it. And major corporations from Coca-Cola to Apple are strongly supportive, as is the majority of mainstream media and many so-called influencers in social media. Ben Shapiro refers to what he calls the iron triangle of leftist influence, education, media, and corporations. There is a concerted effort to silence anyone who would disagree. We like names like Black Lives Matter and social justice. They sound good. But what you need to understand is with any term, there is connotation and there is denotation. So if we just take the denotation, Black Lives Matter, well, of course, Black Lives Matter. But there is a movement that is tied to that, the BLM movement. And uh, I posted an extended quote by uh, Vadi Bakum on this, but Black Lives Matter was started in 2013 by uh, three women in the wake of the Trayvon Martin killing. And um, all three of them are Marxist activists. So the root of the BLM movement, and this is the connotation right? Hashtag BLM is not that black lives matter. Of course they matter. And Fadi Bakum, who is black, takes umbrage at anyone who would say to him because he opposes black lives matter, that he's opposed to the significance of his own life or others like him. He said, it's ridiculous to assume that before 2013 and the black lives matter movement, that nobody was concerned about black lives. It's nonsense. Now he's talking about the movement, so here's the connotation. The same thing with social justice. Well, certainly there should be justice. And Bauckham makes the point, all justice is essentially social. You, if, it's, if you're by yourself on a desert island, there's no justice. <laughs> because justice is about being fair to other people. It's inherently social. But the social justice movement, now the that we get from the denotation, well, of course we want social justice, but the social justice movement is a different story. Um, listen to uh, what uh, Vadi Bakum says. He says, make no mistake about it, we are under attack. I see critical race theory, intersectionality, critical social justice and their antecedents, Marxism, conflict theory, and critical theory, as cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now put that other quote up there, the, the bigger one. It is important to note that in the critical social justice view, the hegemonic power in the United States of America, that means the, the dominant power, right? The Illuminati, the people that are really in power, must include but not be limited to all of the following, white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, that means that you are the same gender as the sex you were born. Able-bodied, native-born, and Christian, what we used to call a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That's right, Christianity is part of the oppressive hegemony. And according to some, it is the most pernicious aspect of it. It has and maintains quote-unquote privilege 
and contributes to oppression, you are going to see opposition to Christian faith. You're already seeing opposition to biblical Christian morals. You are going to see opposition to the Bible. You watch. This is the spirit of the age, and it is seeking to unseat Christianity as the dominant view in the United States of America and all over the West. I believe Satan is using the same Marxist worldview and tactics to destroy America as he has in the cases of other nations, most notably China and Russia, two beautiful nations and cultures that were destroyed, utterly destroyed by Marxism. Marxism is revolutionary. That's in its nature. It seeks to destabilize the status quo of a nation in order to foment revolts among a significant number of its citizens who will then fight to put a godless Marxist government permanently in power. And make no bones about it, Marxists are atheists, period. There's not a Christian Marxist. Karl Marx said that religion is an opiate, right? It is what causes people to not fight for a utopia now because they're looking for pie in the sky. They're looking for something in the future. So, uh, you know, we have the opioid epidemic. People are trying to escape all the pain or whatever. Mark said, yeah, that's religion. It's an opiate, okay? Um, they want to see their system implemented all over the world, okay? Now, this was originally strictly an economic movement but you see, capitalism has worked so well, especially in the United States, that they haven't been able to take that economic route that they were, for instance, able to take with many nations in uh, South America and Central America, right? So when you see extreme economic inequity, Marxists step in and say, hey, socialism, communism, one party, one government, now one oligarchy, it's interesting that they talk about hegemony all the time in critical social justice. It's just replacing one perceived hegemony with an oligarchy that, that will perpetually rule, okay? All communist states have single party governments. We have a two-party system, but I've heard talk recently um, from Democrats saying, we don't need a, a, a viable second party. Huh, <laughs> we don't. I don't care if it's the Republican party or if it's another party, you need a viable second party. What we don't need is democracy being turned into communism, right? Um, so what you need to understand is in the United States, these folks are not gonna shoot their way into power. They're gonna get you to vote them into power. But what you also need to understand is you won't be able to vote them out, right? What you vote in when it concerns Marxism, you'll have to shoot your way out of. This is why these folks want a disarmed United States of America. This is the dominant worldview that is taking root in the United States of America. It might sound like I'm being political, but the dominant zeitgeist is in fact political in nature. Now, you haven't heard me uh, closely align Republicans with Christianity. There are plenty of Christian Republicans. There are plenty of Christian Democrats. 
There are Democratic Party platforms that are seeking to help those that are poor and in need. And there are plenty of Republicans that don't seem to care about that. There are plenty of Republican platforms that are in support of Christian faith and Christian morals, especially family values. Um, what we need to do is focus on Jesus, put people uh, in that perspective. We need to unite around Christ himself. And we need to recognize that there is something that is working in this world that is seeking to remove uh, Christianity from the United States of America. Now, in the 20th century, Marxist governments are responsible for the deaths of 100 million people, minimum. That makes Nazism look like amateur killers, right? And we don't have Nazism anymore, but we sure have a lot of Marxism. And it is amazing to me that after the utter abysmal failure of Marxism in the USSR in the 90s, that it has made a huge comeback in, of all places, the United States of America. So we need to resist these movements and organizations that seek to divide and conquer America. We must continue to uphold religious liberty so that we will have the freedom to preach the gospel. Increasingly, once presumably gospel-oriented Christians are buying into this zeitgeist and putting themselves on the wrong side of the divide. Listen to this statement by author Jamar Tisby as he spoke to the latest anti-racist activist, Phil Vischer. Do you know who Phil Vischer is? He's the guy that created VeggieTales. <laughs> so, Jamar Tisby speaking to the creator of VeggieTales, who's now an anti-racist, and says, religious freedom is really code for white Christians being able to do what they want to do. This is what these folks teach. This is what they believe. You don't get a voice. You don't get to talk. One voice, one party, one power. That's what they want. So I want you to consider that. And when you go to the voting booth, I want you to look at the people who are seeking those positions and realize that they may well be uh, persuaded by this idea. And these, again, these ideas sound on the surface. The denotation sounds very, very good. Black Lives Matter, social justice. Well, of course, anti-racist. Well, of course. But as uh, Body Bauckham demonstrates in his book, the whole anti-racist movement is anti-Christian. See, again, the denotation is always something that sounds good. On the surface, of course I want to be anti-racist. Right? How about Antifa? What does Antifa stand for? Anti-fascist. But what do they do? They start riots. They beat up people. So we need to seriously consider and look under the surface. We need to pop the hood, okay? So if you buy a car, don't just look on the outside, right? They might have buffed it out and painted it, made it look real nice. You better pop the hood and look under. You better drive it, okay? In fact, get a mechanic to look at it. When I bought my, uh, when I was driving for Uber and Lyft back in 2015, 16, I bought a Honda Pilot, 2006 Honda Pilot. And uh, 
This is when uh, Lane Lewis was still here local and working at a Firestone. And I asked the fellow that I was buying it from, I said, hey, can I take this to, to my mechanic? And I called Lane and I said, hey, will you guys look at this? So I drove it to Lane's Firestone and I mean, he checked it all out. And he said, no, it's in good shape. And it's good that I got him to check it out because later I took it to Rusty Wallace Honda and they wanted to do $3,500 worth of work on it. Like, no, my mechanic said it's okay. So, but I bought it as a result of that. I had somebody who knew more than me who looked at it. Are you paying attention to me right now? Don't just be gullible and go down this same road that other people that are in your set are going down because of a few posts or, or whatever. We need to seriously look at this. And again, I keep recommending this and I really, really think it's important. Get this book, Fault Lines, Vadi Bauckham Jr. and read it. It's eye-opening and it's very insightful, all right? So I'm not gonna get into the, these other verses right now. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and wait until next week to do that. So thank you for joining us. And uh, if I made you mad, I'm sorry, but I love you, all right? God bless you and uh, we'll see you guys next week.